0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you would grab your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We continue to work our way through the book of Ephesians in a series of sermons that uh, we're calling Basic Christianity. He said Christianity, the core, essential, fundamental elements of the Christian faith. I want us to read Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 11 and read through verse 16 this morning. If you are willing and able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? Ephesians 4, verse 11. Hear now the word of the true and living God. And he gave by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are able to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let us pray. Indeed, Father, we do not want to be found as uh, children, infants, tossed about by every wind of doctrine. While we want to be your children, we want to be mature in the faith. We want to grow into the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. So help us, Father, to catch the vision from what Paul has written here, and help us to put it into practice, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I believe it was two weeks ago, I left you with the imagery of a football team showing up for a game without helmets and pads. It is uh, football season these days, but it's also the playoffs for Major League Baseball. So can can you imagine a, a baseball team showing up for a game, but not having bats and gloves? These are ridiculous pictures, of course, because to play... You need the necessary equipment. Similarly, to a greater degree, Christ has graciously provided us with the equipment that we need to get on the field and play ball, as it were, to live the Christian life, to engage in good and effective ministry to His glory. And also, we see here that every member of the Lord's body must wholeheartedly participate, or else the body will be deficient in spiritual and and also numeric growth. We see here in verses eleven and twelve what we concluded last week uh, two weeks ago in terms of why Christ has so graced and gifted his church with these gifts these uh, leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teaching shepherds is to equip the church, and and that word, therefore, equip. We talked about how, uh, in in medical usage, it was it was to set a bone. And and so the idea here is Christ puts to rights the things that are wrong with us, and He does so by means of these spiritual leaders that He is fully qualified and fully equipped in order to function in his church. And so once saints, the saints are put back to rights, then they are to engage in the work of ministry. And we spent a bit of time talking about the the ministry and the, the various ministries that we have here at Davis Park. And also for building up or edifying the body. We discussed a bit about what that means. But here, beginning in verse 13, we see the goal until we all, again, every member, all of us, this isn't just for the hyper-spiritual, it's for all of us, every single Christian, every single saint, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. You can connect this back with what we talked about a few weeks ago in verse 3, how we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There, the unity is brought about by the Spirit, and we just maintain that. Here, in verse 13, we are to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge. We are to reach for this goal. We are to strive with all that is within us toward this goal. Specifically, it is the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Here is the first goal. For why Christ gave gifts to his church, and it is for the unity of, or unity in, faith and knowledge of the identity of the Son of God. The goal here of unity of the faith. That is, Christians are to believe the same thing about the Son of God. What kind of things are we to believe? Well, earlier we saw that there is one Lord, back in verse 5. Remember this? 4 and verse 5, here's an essential element about Christ. He is the Lord, the one Lord. He's also the Son of God, fully human, fully uh, deeply. Both of those things uh, are to be believed by Christians. But also, we are to, there's the unity of the knowledge of the Christian. And this, this knowledge has to do with enjoying the deepest levels of fellowship with the Son of God. I think about what Paul wrote in another letter of Philippians, a letter that we've, we've looked at uh, in the past, where he says, I want to know Christ, not just know about Christ, to actually know Him. And, and again, that's what's in view here, is not just to know about Christ, but relationally at a fellowship or a communal level, we have communion with the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. That is what is in view here. We're all supposed to work at this. We're all supposed to strive at this together. Which is, again, why I emphasize there are no spiritual Rambos, no spiritual Chuck Norrises when it comes to the church. We work together toward unity in the faith and unity in knowledge of the Son of God. We work together toward this spiritual growth and maturity rather than just trying to individually go it alone. I know here in the West, in America, there's a strong individualistic streak. We need to recognize the community aspect of this, that together as a church, as one body, we are working toward growth and maturity. The other thing that's very interesting here is that the title here, Son of God, was a political term. This is what the emperor would have called himself. He was a a son of the gods. Here is Paul taking that and saying, we have no king but Christ, the Son of God. And it's very interesting because the next phrase that he uses here, to mature manhood, literally to the perfect man. This was another political term. You see, the king, especially in a, a Syriac context, was the perfect man, the perfect human also, the fullness of Christ, the fullness, another political term. Paul is really leaning into this idea concerning who, who is the king of kings. You've got all the kings who were, are, or ever will be. Who's king over them? King Jesus. And so Paul, Paul is uh, presenting the contrast here and juxtaposing King Jesus with all other kings. But here, the, the perfect man, very interesting. It could mean that you know, we're, we're moving toward maturity and so we go from spiritual infancy to a full-grown uh, Christian. But because it's couched within this discussion about the Son of Man right before it and the fullness of Christ right after it, the perfect man, who would the perfect man be? It's Christ. Christ is the perfect man. He's in view here, Christ Himself. And so... He is in every way the perfect man, and Christians are to attain, to strive for, to reach for Christ's perfection, which I think we all recognize, that's a perfection that is foreign to us, because we are imperfect. We are the, the sinners in this thing. But here's the second goal, why Christ has given gifts to His church, these, these gifted spiritual leaders. It's that all believers would attain to Christ's perfection. It's always been God's intention for His people to be perfect, to be blameless. Under the law, Deuteronomy 18, verse 13, you shall be perfect before the Lord your God. When Jesus shows up, uh, the, His sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Indeed, earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 4, we are to be holy and blameless before Him. Perfection, blamelessness, holiness, All of these have always been the goal, and yet there's always the recognition as well that in and of ourselves, we cannot attain this goal on our own. Children of Israel, they were not perfect. We cannot be perfect like God, and that is why we must ever look to the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The the final completion of this will be realized when he returns, and we're transformed, and we get the, the perfect glorified body. But in the meantime, we as the church, we need to utilize these gifts of grace, those spiritual gifts that Christ has given to His church to reach for the goal of Christ's perfection. And then the third reason as to why Christ gave gifts to His church, we are to attain to, all of us, we are to attain to the the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We saw back in 3.19 how we are to be filled with all the fullness of God, flooded as it were with God. Well, in the same way, we're to be flooded with Christ Himself. The fullness of Christ and the measure of the stature that belongs to that. That is a high level of spiritual maturity. We note carefully, again, it's not just for super saints. It's for all of us. We all are to strive for and reach for this goal, and again, it's Christ's fullness that we are to reach for. I think I asked this question a couple of weeks ago. Let me just reiterate it, or bring it to your attention, if I didn't. What is the Christian life for? Well, what is what is the goal of the Christian life? And often we think, well, it's it's going to heaven, and that's right. That's where we're heading. But I think I did talk about, if if that's just the goal, if that's all it's about, then how come when we're baptized we don't just drop dead and go straight to glory? It's because the goal of the Christian life is to be like Jesus. It is to attain to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. The word there for measure, there's, there's there's a standard. What's the standard? The fullness of Christ. And so we are to be in hot pursuit, striving for that not just sunday mornings when we're together but tuesday mornings and thursday afternoons and saturday nights all of the christian life is striving for and reaching for the fullness of christ and to be like jesus and so unity of faith and knowledge of the son of god the perfection of christ And the fullness of Christ, these are the stated goals as to why Christ has given these gifts to His church. These apostles, prophets, evangelists, teaching shepherds. Growth in faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Growth in the perfect virtues of Christ. Growth in the likeness of Christ's fullness. All of these are why Christ has given these gifts. And only in Christ, by the way, are we able to measure up. You don't get there by remaining disconnected from Christ, disconnected from His body. We need one another. And all this, of course, is in the context of Christ, His stature and His fullness. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you know, if, if babies don't grow, if, if children stop growing We usually take them to the doctor. Something may be wrong here. And as as children aren't supposed to be babies forever, in a similar way, babes in Christ are to grow up in Christ. Members of Christ's church are to be equipped and edified continually to strive for and attain after mature adulthood in the faith. Now, all this here about uh, verse 13, unity and mature adulthood the perfect man and, and the fullness of Christ. Does, does that mean that there's no room for improvement? Not at all. So long as we're here on this earth, there is always room for improvement. But the, the function is that we would no longer, verse 14, be children. Because that would be a dangerous game. We would be subject to all those uh, various and contrary winds and waves in this world. No, so long as you are here, you are filling up what is lacking. And you are striving for and reaching for the measure of the stature that belongs to Christ. So that, again, here's purpose, verse 14. We may no longer be children. And it's children here which is contrasted with the mature manhood or the perfect manhood of Christ. It's true. Say like 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. We are to be infants in evil. That is, uh, we're we're supposed to be innocent, as it were, when it comes to evil. And yet here, at the same time, we're to be mature in our thinking and and how we think about things here in this world. Christian maturity aims at moving us from childhood to grown-up. And there's an eye toward maturity, Paul exhorting these believers that with the assistance of those gifts that Christ has given to His church, and with the ministry of the church, we're no longer to be children. We cease from being infants of the faith. Because here's why. As, as children, as infants, we're tossed to and fro. It's so easy to, well, to be led away. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, and verse 9, we are led away by diverse and strange teachings. And all this talk about waves and, and every wind, its very interesting that the word in the original language for wind can also be uh, translated spirit. And, and so there's, again, a, a contrast here. What wind is filling your sails on the ocean of life? Is it the wind of the Spirit of God that's filling your sails? And therefore you're, you're charting a course of stability and maturity and balance? Or is it the wind of the world and the wind of all of these doctrines and schemes, deceitful schemes? Is that what's filling your sails? And now you're on the choppiness of these waves of different doctrines and all that. Going from one to another to another. just constantly in- unstable in your immaturity. What wind is filling your sails? Now That's a question you have to answer in your own heart of hearts this morning. You see, the tempest of teaching tosses about the immature believer. uh, They're being carried around from one strange thing to another. And again, all that instability is contrasted with the solid ground of sound teaching, of truth in love, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. But as I think about this instability here, tossed to and fro, I can't help but think about something we talked about in Bible class this morning, about how I see many believers who start walking down or, or charting a course across the sea of deconstruction. I see it from believers who, who come out of uh, legalistic circles. You see, in, in legalism, they're they're bound and they're constricted, and, and as they reach adulthood, many of these believers... They, through the process of deconstruction, they abandon legalism, which, which is a good thing, by the way. But what ends up happening is they fall off the, the side of the road and land in the ditch on the other side of, legal, uh, of liberalism and, and progressivism, which is just as dangerous as the legalism on the other side of the road. And so they begin to question everything. Uh, some of the questions we talked about this morning, did, did Paul really write the books that we attribute to him? And, and who is Paul anyway? Why should, why should his books be in here? And can we even really know what he meant when he wrote what he writes in certain places? And, and then they start speaking such seemingly pious, though void of any kind of meaning, statements like, God wants our trust more than our correct beliefs correct beliefs. Or they say things like, I'm just following Jesus, and having right beliefs is not essential to that. And again, that sounds pious. That may have uh, a seeming ring of truth to it, but it's actually a wind of doctrine that leads to a tempest and eventually shipwreck of the faith. I see it all too often. It's, It's heartbreaking. Because again, what's at the heart of all these waves and doctrines is human cunning, the end of verse 14, and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul, in in several phrases here, describes this pseudo-teaching, this pseudo-doctrine. Human cunning, very uh, interesting phrase here, Uh, was was sometimes used in the context of playing dice, rolling the dice. And, And the metaphor there was that People would would use the dice in a deceptive way. They they would use it to cheat in order to win. And so here, the the craftiness and the human cunning that's involved in these teachings, is uh, it it results in people ultimately rolling the dice on their salvation and jeopardizing their walk with the Lord. Paul has in mind, I'm sure, some uh, scheming heretics of his day the truth is we also still have scheming heretics today, men who are trying to entice people to roll the dice on their spiritual well-being and causing people to roll the dice on their spiritual lives. And mature saints and mature churches who are no longer children, they allow the wind of the Spirit to fill their sails rather than this craftiness and all these deceitful schemes. And, and when error rears its ugly head, The mature Christian is able to identify it quickly, immediately. Doctrine matters. Either you follow the doctrine of Christ, or there's other doctrine out there that is vying for your attention, and you will be led astray by it. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. Either you will follow after the truth in love, and the truth about Christ in love, or you'll be led away by these erroneous doctrines. That again, they're vying for your attention. They want you to follow after them. Without doctrine, what are we left with? Well, Paul talks about human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. And those cannot bring you to a place where you are united in faith and knowledge. It cannot bring you to the mature and perfect man of Christ. It cannot bring you to the measure, the stature, that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Those windy doctrines, they cannot bring you to Jesus, the Jesus that the apostles knew. However, the truth in love equips saints with what we need to attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Truth in love, spoken by Christ's leaders, leads us to the perfect man and even the perfect manhood of Christ. Truth communicated in love by Christ's gifts of grace to His church enables us to strive for the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. With true doctrine, Christ's church thrives, and we are able to grow up into Christ, which is again why we need to speak the truth in love. Verse 15, rather, here's the contrast. On the one hand, again, you have the deceitful schemes and the human cunning, and the craftiness of all the waves and wind of the doctrine that's out there in the world. On the other hand, you have the pure doctrine of Christ spoken, the truth of Christ spoken in love. And and literally, speaking the truth here could be, it's clumsy in English because we don't talk this way, but it could be truthing in love, all right? Because everything that we speak is wrapped up in truth and truth-telling. Speaking the truth is being honest. It's following after the truth. It's telling the truth. One writer says, truth must be inseparably married to love, though. Good news spoken in a harsh manner is not good news. The winsomeness of truth can be adversely affected by a negative spirit. In love, also here, the tr- speaking the truth in love, in love is contrasted with that deceitful scheming that we saw there in verse 14. There's the contrast. And so we need to connect this here, speaking the truth in love. That's what all those gifts that Christ gives to His church is supposed to do. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, teaching shepherds, they speak the truth in in love. And it is through their communication and teaching of truth in love that these leaders equip the saints for works of ministry and for building up of the body. All of this, again, is in love. A couple things just to, to note here about truth. Truth, number one, it must be spoken. Hm. Truth must be spoken. This is the way to avoid error. This is the way to preserve others from the error of all those windy doctrines and those waves back in verse 14. Christians are to speak the truth, the simple truth, nothing but the truth, so help us God, right? But then also, truth must be spoken in love. Because there are other ways of communicating and speaking the truth. Sometimes it can be spoken in a harsh manner. Sometimes we can speak it in in a crabby way. Sometimes we can do it in a a sour tone, like we were baptized in vinegar or something. I don't know, right? But that—that—that that, that is unhelpful. It just uh, leads to offense of people's souls. When we state the truth to others, it, it should be from a heart of love. When we admonish a brother or a sister with their faults, it should not be in a harsh and an unfeeling manner. It must be spoken in love. It is my prayer that when you hear me speak the truth from this pulpit, that you hear it from a heart of love for Christ's bride. When it comes to speaking the truth in love, you, know, you, have, you have both elements. You have truth and love, right? Sometimes, though, what happens is we, we place an emphasis or a premium on one or the other. And the same thing can happen... At an individual level, it can happen. It's scalable at a congregational level. Sometimes churches have all kinds of truth, but they lack love. This is legalism. On the other hand, other congregations may have that loving spirit, but are deficient in truth. This is sentimentalism or or liberalism. Both truth and love are needed. Otherwise, you end up with either harsh legalism on the one hand or soft liberalism on the other. Truth and love, again, they must be married together, as we said earlier. And then notice, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. This body language, we've been seeing it all throughout the book of Ephesians. We, the church, were the body, Christ is the head. And the body receives its... Orders from the head. And so we're ever looking to Christ. Notice, we are to grow up. Christians. And again, Paul's emphasis has been on all Christians. Not just the hyper-spiritual or the super-saints. All Christians. We are to grow up in every way. You see how the lordship of Christ is supposed to touch every aspect of our lives? There is no realm of your life or mine that is not subject to the lordship of Christ. And it's truth that will enable us to grow up in every way into him who is the head. So the aim, again, the aim is to draw closer and closer to Christ. To look more and more like Jesus. To, more, to look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday. With the anticipation, oh, I'll look more like Christ tomorrow than I, even I do today. Ever-growing in our holiness and our walk with the Lord. And it is from whom? Uh, From Christ. The whole body joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly. Again, notice, no one is overlooked here. Every single Christian, every single thing, every part of the body needs to be working properly. There, there's a sense here, again, the, the whole body is in view. We're dependent upon one another. We need one another. Brother, sister, I need you. You need me so that we can help one another grow up and mature. Uh, by Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Uh, joined and held together that's, those are, are present tense things. In other words, this is the ongoing reality of the church. It's a continual process. It, the, the individual members are fit exactly together, and we're united. We're knit together is, is how that idea of being held together could also be understood. And so what's pictured is harmony and solidarity. We're, we're, we're all united, and we're all moving together uh, in uh, in step with one another, but then also what's fascinating is, is joined and held together. Well, that is ongoing and continuous. It's also uh, passive in its voice. In other words, we're, we're all together being acted upon by the Lord and by His Spirit who, who dwells among us and within us. Christ is the one from whom we're joined and held together, uh, the whole body is. But then also, the end of verse 16, what's been in view all along the way is how Christ is the focus of our growth and our maturity, that we're to be Christ-like. He's giving us everything we need to be equipped and to be in pursuit of the mission and the ministry of the church. But then verse 16, and he, he makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. It is from Christ that the body is made to grow. But then also in view is that we are building ourselves up. That we are dependent entirely upon the the work of Christ, all the the power that He supplies. This is something that we've already seen as we've been going through Ephesians, the end of chapter 3, really placed the emphasis on the power of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to supply us with what we need. And here we see it yet again is that we are dependent upon Christ for all this. And yet at the same time, we are dependent upon one another to build ourselves up. And you notice the atmosphere for all this is an atmosphere of love. It builds itself up in love. Love connects back to verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, that's the manner in which The the gifts that Christ has given are to speak the truth, but then here's the responsibility of the whole body, and the manner in which we are to grow up and build ourselves up is in love. Paul leans into the figure of the human body to talk about the church, talk about Christ as the head of the church, and and he's talking about the the functional unity that exists in a human body and how that is supposed to characterize the church. Okay? And, and so as we think about that, you think about all of the various bones that we have, right? We've got arm bones, we've got leg bones, rib cage. And then you think about also all the connective tissue that holds the body together, right? All the, the joints and the sinew and the ligaments, the nerves, all of the... Uh, blood vessels, arteries, all that that carries that needed blood to all the various parts of the body. And again, every part of it is essential. If if a nerve or, or some of the, 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 the arteries weren't they didn't work properly, what would that result in? Uh, at best, disease and at worst death. And in a similar way, every member of the church, is vital, is necessary to the proper functioning of the church. Every member has something to contribute to the proper functioning of the church. And just as there are no idle nerves or blood vessels or bones, so also there uh, are no idle members, or at least there should be no idle members, because again, all of us need to be employed in the proper functioning of the body. But if it's true that every part is essential, well what happens if a member is not functioning properly? Uh, what happens when maybe in fact they're actually doing something which is harmful or destructive to the body? First and foremost, it is the responsibility of those gifts that Christ has given his church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teaching shepherds, to identify the issue, to address it with this rogue member of the body, but then also the body at large functions in order to call this brother, this sister, and then a, a longer conversation needs to be had about Jesus' teaching about discipline and things like that. But in the meantime, again, I want to stress here what Paul stresses. Christ has graciously gifted his church with everything that we need for being equipped, for works of ministry, for building up the body, for unity, for pursuing Christ's likeness in every area of our life. And that every member is to be involved in the process and in the project of pursuing maturity and growth in the body. There is a very real danger and threat to the growth and functioning of the body, verse 14. But again, we have what we need from God, which is truth. And Christ, by His Spirit, Puts within our capacity the love that we need to pursue faith, knowledge, maturity, and even the fullness of Christ. Let's commit this to prayer. Lord God, we look to you for all things. And you have placed before us the high and the lofty goal of Christlikeness. likeness Help us, Father, by your Spirit within us to pursue growth and maturity in love. Help us, Father, to speak the truth in love to one another so that we can grow up and function properly in the Lord's body. Lord God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here, who perhaps have grown idle, have stagnated, perhaps even have fallen back a few steps. I pray, Father, that you, by your Spirit, would rekindle the fires of pursuing Christ-likeness and ministry in their heart. And indeed, Father, for all of us, that you would ever hold before us this vision of the beautiful body of Christ, working together properly, every part, to your glory. We pray this through Christ. Amen. My friend, you may be here this morning.